Well, um, as Huey mentioned and Mike mentioned, please continue to pray for the Shins. Um, they had a little ordeal in leaving. They didn't have Elizabeth's passport and they got it on Friday. They went down to the federal building and to the last ninth hour, or eleventh hour, as they say, and they got it. So they all left together. And um, fortunately, God has um, taken care of our passports. Our pictures are quite not that great, but all four of us have passports. And um, yes, we do. We did have some concerns about going in the times like this and times of war. You know, I've never traveled overseas, especially towards the direction where the war is occurring. And but we know God is sovereign, and um, we trust in Him. And uh, getting the excitement back to to go and really looking forward to. Uh, I don't know exactly what my role is, just to show up and least I could do is pray for Peter and his family. And um, I'm, I leave the rest of it up to God and that he'll bless the time there and then there'll be a time of encouragement to them, most importantly. <clears throat> you know, I personally knew an old woman in Korea. And she was originally born in the north. And before she was 25, she had three kids. And she had her oldest child at the age of 18. You know, she ended up actually giving birth to nine children, and two of them which died and seven survived. After World War II, the North and South was divided. The Russians occupied the northern part, became communist. When they found this out, she took her family with her husband, left on a little boat with a few other families, and fled to the South. And she established her life there, but the age of 40, by the age of 40, she was widowed. And she has to gather the family and raise seven children by herself. Her family was very poor. She didn't have very much. They didn't have much in savings. Her children bought like American gum and candy and became a street peddler, selling these things on street corners. And with the little savings that they made up, she started a little hotel at the end where she would cook for the people, travelers, and she would give them a place to stay where they could clean up and go on about their business. It became moderately successful. And they were able to save up more money. And she was able to put some money away. With that money, she gave five of the seven children college education. And... She decided to, she was wondering what she would do with the money, the investment. They didn't have mutual funds back in Korea. So, with only a fourth grade education, she decided to put some money in real estate. She was, she marveled. She was a simple woman. She marveled. Her children got a college education. And she marveled that they could speak and write English. Without money, she invested. The town became a major metropolitan city. Daejeon in Korea. It's like the third or fourth largest city in Korea. She bought some pieces of land. In 1995, um, she passed away. Her diligent work ethic, persevering, and wise investment. The, the plots of land that she bought was worth over $20 million in U.S. dollars at the end. The woman was very, not very well educated, 
lived with what they had, started with selling gum and candy in the corner, and she, made, she was wise with her resources. A truly story of an amazing woman. Now I want to sort of talk about that today. It is a story of this, uh, this parable, as we take all the parables in totality. This parable of something that has been given a servant, something has been given to a ser- servant or a slave. And the important thing here, whether it's money, now I don't want to talk about finances today, but there are many other things that we receive from God that I want to talk about. Let's do a quick background on Matthew. The word gospel, gospel, this is according, gospel according to Matthew. God, the word gospel comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, Godspell. It means good story or story of God. Gospels are not biographies. It's centered around Christ, but it does not, it's not, his intent is not to present complete history of his life. Apart from his birth and maybe a brief excerpt of his childhood, little information is given until the last three years of his life. The primary purpose of this particular gospel is theological and apologetic in nature. Matthew, the writer of this, means, the word Matthew means the gift of the Lord. His other name was Levi, we see in chapter 9. He was a tax collector who left everything at the end to follow Christ. Matthew wrote this gospel. The primary intended audience was the Jewish people. He presents the Jesus of Nazareth. A descent from Israel's greatest king, King David. He intersperses throughout this gospel the Old Testament quotes and various aspects of Christ's life. And Matthew wrote this gospel to strengthen the faith of Jewish Christians and to provide a useful tool for their evangelism. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke focused on Christ's ministry around Galilee. They call it the Galilean ministry. And what we're studying with Pastor James, is the Gospel according to John, is a ministry around Judea. Although all these four Gospels have unique perspectives, it's for a different audience. But taken together, it puts together a, a complete and amazing testimony about life of our Lord Jesus Christ. The woman I spoke of earlier was an excellent steward of her resources. She was a good steward of what was given to her. She made most of it. You know, the word steward means a manager or a servant of a household. Not an owner, but a manager. That's what we are on this earth. We're one who manages God's properties, but God has entrusted in us to take care of for the short period of time while we're on this earth. The concept of this responsibility, again, does not just extend to financial matters, but it goes to all things. And we'll talk about in greater detail today. But ultimately, we have to remember, the concept of stewardship begins... And ends with God. He is the creator 
and the owner of all things. So God is the owner. The relationship is owner and manager relationship. That we are the managers of what's been entrusted to us. It includes our whole life. You know, in decision-making as Christians, we need to understand that we are here temporarily. We are aliens, sojourners. Our true citizenship doesn't belong here. The Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the power and darkness and conveyed to us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We no longer live in darkness. We live in the light. The Christ is light of the world, right? First Peter 2.9 So while we're on this earth, developing decision-making skills, how to properly honor God, and understanding Christian godly stewardship, we need to remind ourselves that we have been delivered from darkness into light. That our perspective cannot be same from this world. Every believer has one primary occupation, is to be good stewards, excellent stewards, excellent managers of the resources that God has entrusted to us while we're here. And this is what Christianity is all about. You know, we live in a self-centered, consumer-oriented, about how much we could consume. It's a very selfish point of view. The lack of biblical stewardship has reached a crisis point, a breaking point, if you will, in Christendom. You know, this world's viewpoint has rubbed off on Christians way too far. The influences of this world has affected Christian community far greater way than the other way around, where the Christians affect the world. Some of us Christians live like the world, people of the world, and just with a small flavor of Christianity. Maybe just on Sundays. We push the envelope of being a Christian to the very edge. As long as you don't go over. But we're pushing the envelope. Where are you pushing the envelope towards? Towards darkness. And we have to be careful of that. And a large portion of the Christian community sees the blessings of God that has been given to us, that has been entrusted to us, sometimes just for our own personal pleasure, personal happiness, or personal comfort. By contrast, Scripture teaches us that even in comfort that we receive from God, that comforts us, that makes us happy, it's not from ourselves. It's all from God. You know, this parable of talents in Matthew 25 is the second of two parables in this chapter. The first being the parable of the ten virgins. It focuses on the readiness manifesting and waiting. It talks about the five virgins who had their oil in the lamps represent believers who possess saving grace. And it talks about the end times. 
for a Redeemer returning. Second coming of our Lord. And the second parable illustrates a tragedy, a wasted opportunity. And two others who are faithful. This man who goes on a journey represents, I think most of us know, is Christ. Christ. You know, all believers are given different levels of gift and responsibility. So I want to break down this chapter, um, this passage, this parable, into three sections. Number one is responsibility. Number two is the result. Number three is a reaction. This parable tells us the gift that each had received. One man, one servant, received five talents. Another, two. The last one, one. Just one talent. The word talent usually refers to money. But it, in, a, in a broad picture, however, it refers to and simply represents some measure of weight. Although it's seemingly, this text seemingly many people do say that the measure of unit of money is involved. But I believe that Matthew lays this intrinsic emphasis on the principle rather than just exclusive to money. Principle of being a steward. You know, the slaves in the ancient world considered far more responsibility and authority than American slaves in recent history. You know, master going on a journey, entrusting his resources and what he had to his slaves was not uncommon. This picture that we see here was, it happened frequently. Many slaves were considered almost like partners to the masters in the ancient world. Again, as this man who goes away represents Christ. The journey represents time that Christ is away from his second, first and the second coming. You know, all of us, certain believers, have been gifted with solid financial backing of their families. Some of them gifted with education. Some special, some of us have been, since a young age, have the advantage of being exposed to the Word of God. Right doctrine. All of us, or most of us, have been blessed living in the most wealthiest country in the world. You know, there's an obvious difference between a Christian in Southern California and a Christian in Bangladesh. Right? It's an obvious difference. And we, we should consider that a gift. The important question there is, what are we doing with it? Even the twelve disciples had different levels of responsibility. They all had apostolic power. But some people we just barely hear about. We see in Acts... Luke records things, but you see very few things um, Luke does. But you see Peter, a man like Paul, dominating the scene. So responsibility. Everybody has been given according to each ability. So what happens in this story? What is the result? 
So again, the important thing is not what each slave was given, it's what they did with it. You know, all of us, therefore, it goes to everyone in this church, every member here. We belong to the body of Christ. We belong to this body called Cornerstone. We have been given different levels of talent, not just talent or what we could do, but just level of gifts to serve God. It's not important. It is not important whether we have two, one, fifteen, twenty. It's about what we do with it. We all of us different in our capabilities. God has gifted us in different ways, and God has afforded us opportunities to produce for His kingdom in different ways. But the most important aspect here is how faithful are you to those gifts that God has given you? Christ was, was glad. He, he commended the two people who had five talents and produced five and those who had two and produced two. But the third person, third slave who was given just one talent was complete polar opposite. He had been given one, but what did he do? He dug it in the ground. Although he had lost, not lost, one was given, but no result was gained. Even though he was given fewer resources than other two slaves, but he still had the obligation to maximize the gift for his master. So lastly, the reaction. What is the reaction of Christ, of that master? Remember, just like the second coming, this master returned unexpectedly. Now the first order of business as he returned was to settle the account of each servant. Again, one that was given five, one that was given two, he says what? Well done, good and faithful servants. Same thing. One produced five, one produced two. The important thing again is they were faithful to what, that was, what was given to them. He does not praise one man who produced five versus two. It's according to one's ability. So the distinguishing mark of these two servants is that they took the opportunity that was given to them to use for to advance and to reward back to his master. They invested everything that was given and they put it in service for the master's good. The fruitful gain was earned. And these demonstrate, these two servants demonstrate their faithfulness, their fruitfulness. Not only do they prove that they belong to God, they belong to that master, but they will have a greater, Christ says, the master says, and gives, will have a greater opportunity to bear more fruit for him. But again, the third slave, however, was a complete different story. Did not present with the master with any earnings. And he tried to make excuses. Worship. This is, he didn't do anything with it. 
But he tried to make excuses. And listen to what he says. Master, I knew you were a hard man. You're a hard man. You're a difficult boss. You reap where you did not sow. And gathering where you scatter no seed. He's basically saying, paraphrasing him, to modern day language, man, you'd like to go get money where you didn't invest any money, stretch everything. Basically, is accusing the master of a man who steals and cheats. And he says, I was afraid and went away. You hid your talents in the ground. The one thing, this is, you could tell by his reaction, it's a, just a reaction. He's just given an excuse. He doesn't understand the master-servant or master-slave relationship. He does not recognize the master. He does not recognize who this master is. He does not know him. He didn't even bring a pretense of honoring him anyway. He simply disregarded, disregarded his stewardship and what has been given to him. You know, in the same way, the truth comes out here and it applies to this day. And a person may live in an environment, in a God-redeemed community, in a church, having exposure to the Word of God, the teachings of the, of the Bible and fellowship with His people. But there's no food for service because He doesn't understand who His Master is. This man has no concern for him, for the Master. He just simply gives an excuse. This person is just way off, not even close. But he has audacity to accuse his Master has a complete misunderstanding. And even on top of that, this is outright sin. Outright offense towards the Master. You know, this type of servant is someone who lives not in the light, not in the Word of God, but rather on his own wisdom and understanding. Such people usually judge God in light of their own perverted perceptions. Not only to justify their actions, but do so at God's expense. Using God, pointing to God, His character as an excuse. How offensive is that? How offensive is that? This man portrays an ungenerate person with no spiritual fruit displays complete absence of worship towards his master. Man is completely blind to the true character of his master. So what does Christ say? What is his reaction? Does you wicked, lazy slave you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not gather no seed, then you ought to have put my money in the bank on my arrival. I have received my money with interest. It's interesting here. He used the word 
Wicked and lazy. Wicked and lazy are associated. Laziness, which displays, portrays the servant, is wicked. Laziness, sluggardness, is wicked. Laziness is sin. Why? Because he's wicked. He's lazy and wicked because he deliberately misrepresents both the master and himself. He tries to disguise himself and blame it on his master. He lied about his laziness. He was guilt of, guilty of sin, of being lazy. Then he goes on as on top of that, accusing the master. The truth of the matter is he has no concern about the master, only himself. You know, the failure of the servant represents the uselessness and the worthlessness of someone who doesn't have Christ or even professes faith in Christ but proved false because one bears no fruit and does not understand the master. That life is meaningless. So to conclude this parable, I want to point out two things, two simple things. A genuine faithful believer will ultimately bear fruit. A faithful one will bear fruit to the much that was given to him. They will take advantage of their gift that has been bestowed upon them. And if they are truly faithful, they will be given more. And they will gain reward from God. And that's what this parable says. Now we have to remember, who is Jesus talking to right now? Who is, it, who is it telling this parable to? To the disciples. So I think he's reminding them that they must keep watchful eye so that their lives don't lead to passivity, but instead focus on what has been given to them and focus on their duty. And for the unbeliever, second point, that they will no, no way bear fruit. They seemingly think sometimes they, they know what is right and wrong. But it's truly meaningless because it's dependent upon their own knowledge and wisdom. Externally, they may display same, similar characteristics as other Christians, but their hearts are still regenerate and wicked. It's perverse. And their final demise is that they don't know the true master who they belong to. The servant not only is unfaithful, but faithless. There is no saving relationship with him and the master, with him and God. You know, no matter how much one may appear to have been blessed by God, but one, of, one thing that happens to all of us one day, well, you hear one of these two things, as is this parable. Well done, my good and faithful servant, or I'll never, I never knew you, depart from me. All of us will hear one of these two things. What does he say at the end? What does he do to this guy who is unfaithful and just faithless? 
says, cast them into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth to cast them out. You know, Matthew uses the same phrase five times in his parable. Okay. And I wondered where, what, the, what he meant, but it's obvious. But all five times, basically talks about his eternal destination, hell. Because of his unworthiness, worthlessness, because his lack of knowledge, lack of understanding of who true master is, his fate is sealed. You know, many people in the churches today, sitting in pews today, may think that they know God, may think that they have all the answers, but like the servant in this parable, they may be way, way off, way off. Wrong sense of security. There's no saving relationship. Now this parable just points to this. Being an excellent steward involves understanding these three principles. Let me give these to you. Number one, ownership principle. You know, although God owns everything, God owns everything and He gives everything. Nevertheless, the amazing thing about God is that He entrusts His servants, believers, to do His work, to manage His resources for Him. So excellent, being an excellent steward begins with understanding that. Understanding that God is the owner of all things. Number two, responsibility principle. The opportunities, gifts are bestowed upon us according to what God-given ability. That our gifts are given to according to our ability. And we are to make sure that we bear fruit and are faithful to these talents. A faithful Christian uses what God has given him to the wisest possible way to, uh, to ultimately bring glory to him. And lastly, accountability principle. All Christians at the end will give an answer for how we have used those resources. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done. You know, genuine believer, like I said it earlier, will bear fruit. They will take advantage of their gift that is bestowed upon them to be faithful to them and to bear fruit. You know, finally, I could say this in this, is that being a Christian is to be a steward. You can't separate stewardship. Stewardship is not an option. You can't separate Christian Christianity with stewardship. It's not a second level of Christianity. We are to be stewards. The question is, how excellent are we in doing that? So I want to spend the rest of the time in some applications. 
three principles of stewardship, three principal areas I want to focus on is stewardship of time, stewardship of gifts, and stewardship of the gospel, the truth. First, stewardship of time. You know, God has allowed all of us equally in terms of this, right? Everybody has, and maybe last night we lost what, 23, we only had lost an hour, so only 23 hours. Today, everybody has 24 hours. Everybody's been given that. We're all the same. But it is not uncommon to hear comments like, there just isn't enough time to do everything. I don't know where time goes. I try to find time, but I can't make it. You know, we have wealth of resources. We have telephones, fax machines, email, internet, priority mail, next day delivery, FedEx, UPS. You know, you could send FedEx here today. You know, not today, but you know, business day. It gets to the next day. All the way across the country. Everything is moving at a fast rate. The problem is... The problem isn't where this society is not, not the amount of time. Time has been just sovereignly given to us by God. But our view of time, how we use our time, is a question. Remember, we're only here temporarily, guys. Right? We're only here temporarily. But what we do here during those 24 hours every day, over and over again, has eternal ramifications. Because that's what God chooses to do. What we do during those 24 hours has eternal ramifications. How we use our time. Let's examine life of Christ real briefly. Amount of time during the life of Christ that's depicted in the scriptures, man is never in a hurry. Time is not a problem to him. The one thing Christ does greatly, he knows the needs. He's God, right? So he knows the needs and what constitutes his, his call, what he needs to do. The study of our Savior's life shows he has, obviously he was tremendously busy, especially the last years of his life. Often exhausted. I'm sure he was rushed from one place to another, constantly moving. But he always seemed to have time to minister to people. Sometimes spending extended period of time that he may not have. Like the woman at the well. Takes time out for her. Our Savior cared deeply about people, their hurts, their situations. And what is that word? He was full of compassion. God, Christ always had time to be compassionate. So what he distinguished was he put his focus and care into what mattered the most. What would impact or what would have the greatest internal ramification. So it doesn't matter how gifted we are, how strong we are,
it doesn't matter in this earth how we are able to meet everyone's needs. It's not about meeting everyone's needs. But how we go about that. Knowing what are important needs. And being able to distinguish that. And we ought to learn that from our Lord. Let me give you four quick principles on time stewardship. Why people still... These are what not to do. What people do to stay so busy. You know, people, number one, people stay busy because of their egos, their pride. People want to, all, many, one of the sins that we deal with is we want to appear important than the others in our society. Having crowded schedule is something of pride. Having incredible numbers of hours working. Heavy demands on you in your workplaces. The question is, what kind of eternal ramifications is that having on what you're doing? Where you're allowing, allocating your time resources? Number two, I said this briefly earlier. People stay busy to cover up their laziness. You know, that path of least resistance? Right? What is one of the paths of least resistance? Maybe lying on the sofa? Right? Watching seven hours of basketball? Right? Be careful. Avoid these things. Laziness. What does Christ say? That is wicked. You know, some people would rather just stay busy doing all kinds of irrelevant activities. Just activities. Rather than spending hard putting hard work, hard hours working towards the kingdom of God. Some people stay busy. Number three, of greed. Simply greed. Materialism. That's a big problem in a Christian community today, in our society. That kind of thing is the primary source is fulfillment, security, satisfaction of themselves. Is, and the, the seductive thing about greed is we say, we equate that with success. And success is very appealing and is very intoxicating. Success in this world is very attractive to many of our hearts. But what are we chasing in terms of this world? Are we chasing that position in this world? Power in this world? Prestige in this world? pleasure in this world and possessions in this world. Lastly, ultimately I think this is it. People stay busy because they're more concerned about pleasing themselves or men than rather than God. You know, Acts 6, 1, 7 is a great example the apostles give us. They choose other men to minister, to do the work, the hands-on work, so they can minister to their ministry of word and prayer. Men, These men knew how to segregate what was important and what was secondary. So we have to remember, people, that 
in grasping this um, understanding of stewardship of time, we must grasp who we are as Christians. That we are not citizens of this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. And second, no understanding of why we're here. Why God has given us this time here. We are to be what? Ambassadors of Christ. We are called to a worldwide missions. Making disciples of all nations. Why? Acts 1.8 We're here to represent the Savior, to glorify God, and enjoy Him forever. We are not to enjoy things of this world. We are to enjoy Him. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled. In a tireless work, when you press for time, working for God, it's God-honoring thing. It's a good thing. It's a requirement. Not an option for a Christian. It's par for the course. And I've said this before a while back. Is that I'm so busy. Man, it's crazy busy. Does that become like fad words in Christendom? Right? Again, time is not an excuse. Everybody's been a lot of the same. We have to decide what we're going to do with it. How faithful are we to time? Second, stewardship is gifts. Romans 12:38 says, For through grace have been given to me, I see to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so too as to have sound judgment, as God had allowed each, mem- each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same functions. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ, as individual members of one another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. You know, the spiritual gifts, that we are a body of Christ. You know, if one thing that, that we need to, for all believers, again, have varying degrees of talents, but everyone is to be faithful to that. It's in the body of Christ, in the church. Just because one has been great, um, has greater gifts, doesn't mean that he ought to do everything. Everyone has to be faithful to what they have given. And everybody, everybody, every believer has been given according to each ability by God and His knowledge. And we are to be faithful to that. Everyone ought to be a functional member of a church, of a local church. So we need to get rid of this clergy mentality that pastors and leaders do all the work. And you know, I talked about this years back, becoming a sideline Christian, spectator Christian. You know, we live in a society where spectator sports dominate. You know, athletes make umpteen millions of dollars. You know, I heard a figure, Alex Rodriguez makes, what, $22 million in one year? Derek Jeter makes $15 million. Now, if you have sons, you've got to make them shortstops, basically, right? You know, that's capitalism at its best. And this country displays that. Displays the, the humanity. Fulfilling entertainment. Where they pay athletes such ungodly sum of money. Who pays for that? People. People. We wouldn't watch 
as others perform. My question to you is that, do you have the same mentality when you come here? Watch people perform. Everybody has been given to serve the body, both quantitatively and qualitatively. Quantitatively meaning evangelism, converting others. And qualitatively meaning edifications. Edification, edifying, encouraging other believers. There is no such thing as one man show in the church. Wrong philosophy. And we become spectators. The leaders have to motivate, train, delegate. You know, the evangelical church has become weak and flabby. A weak voice in the society. You know, I've been working out. I go to the gym. And during the beginning of the year, you know, I get a little bit mad because when January comes around, there's all these people that's come out of the woodworks making new, new Year's resolutions, decide to work out. I can't get on a machine. I can't get on a machine. Many people are out of shape. They just come out, work out from January to March. Now April came around. Things are slowing down a bit. The resolution is gone. It's a little bit easier to work out. I don't have to like wait for a machine or anything. I could pretty much get there and find the machine to work out. Are we those kind of Christians? We have short spurts of inspiration. Make short spurts of resolution and go to the gym, go to church and serve, but kind of fizzle out. Not able to sustain what God has given us. Not, a, not able to be faithful through and through. You know, Peter challenges us with our mission as God's people in 1 Peter 2.9. And this is a very powerful passage. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. How powerful is that? You are a chosen nation. We are chosen people to do His work. Yet we're sinners. God in His abundant grace has given us equipped as a body. One of us can't stand alone. One of us can't do everything. But as a group, as a church, we can. And that was God's intended purpose. And it's an amazing fact about God's grace. is He chooses defiled, depraved, perverted sinners and changes their hearts to do His work and gives them Gives them ability to do it. But without God starting that, we have no chance. We're just sinful. Therefore, ultimate purpose of our gifts should not just be seen as individuals, but as corporately as well. For ultimately what? To glorify Him. To glorify Him. So, in your own individual battles, you say, am I glorifying God in my life? And what was entrusted to me. And as a church, we ask ourselves, are we doing everything as a church to glorify Him for ultimate purpose?
And that's the, the stewardship of the gospel, the truth. There's another one of those things. The gospel message has been gifted to all the believers the same. Everybody has the same challenge. The truth is given to all of us. The evangelism is not an option. We exist. Our mission in this area to be faithful stewards is to penetrate the world, local and global, with the message of Jesus Christ. I think, frankly, the idea of becoming a mission-oriented church or mission-oriented member is frightening to some people. It scares them. It scares me. That's how sinful I am. We are more comfortable with the, with the concept of paying others and watching others go. And we relegate ourselves. Yeah, we'll donate money when missions basket goes around. And sometimes even a good thing we could hide behind. Even the same prayer. We should watch our hearts. Yeah, we have to give and we must pray. And I pray that you will continue to pray with, um, pray for our family and Pastor James's family. That's definitely necessary. But sometimes, check yourself honestly. We might hide behind that. I have. I have. You think about the gospel message. That is the greatest possession that has been given to us. The most valuable thing that has been entrusted to us. It is intrinsically valuable. It's priceless. And it is worth guarding. And it's worth letting everyone know. Our duty, our responsibility is to multiply. What is the current status of, our, of the church? You know, mission of the church has not changed. The mission statement. You know, every company has a different mission statement. Every organization has different. They, sometimes it's I go to two different places and they have the same mission statement. But even the mission statement for the church has been the same since day one. Day one, since the first century church to the twentieth century church. You know, there are winnable souls everywhere. We need to understand our mission and follow biblical methods to do this. We can't ignore it. You know, there are problems in our churches today. Number one is that reaching non-Christians is sometimes a low priority or not even a priority. It is the heartbeat. It was the heartbeat of the first century church. It may have been diminished, eroded slowly over the years in the minds of Christians. Secondly, evangelism is much discussed and very little practice. Again, it's part of everyone's doctrinal statement. Statement of faith. It's on the bulletin board. Harvest is plenty. 
workers are few. Many seminars and videos and books are written about it. The world is very corrupt, folks. It's out of control. You know the, what the greatest heresy today is? It's very subtle and attractive to all of us, including Christians. And it has been around since the Garden of Eden. It found, it found itself in self-help books, poems, and songs. It feeds our pride and fuels our self-centeredness. It's humanism. It's gone to a point where people worship ourselves. One pastor once said, you know, in many, even Christians today, many people today, might as well build an altar of ourself, image, create a statue of ourself. And when we come home every day, we should bow to it. Because in effect, that is what's happening. We feed to live our self-centeredness. You know, even the statement some people say in Christendom today, God helps those who help themselves. I believe that statement is wrong. Where's grace? You don't help yourself. God helps you do everything. We have nothing. That's what total depravity is. We're totally sinful. We have nothing to help ourselves with. It's God. This age-old philosophy that has been slowly growing, that's hitting the crescendo now of humanism, has been ingrained and influenced even Christian hearts this day. So the question is, what's wrong with the message that's been trusted to us? The greatest message in the world, most valuable thing in this world, message that gives life, Instead of death. Why are we failing to spread this good news and fulfill the Great Commission? Why are we failing? Why are we not hitting full stride in our lives, in our individual lives, and as a church? You know, we heard, I'm sure many of us follow the news very closely these days. And this week we saw the U.S. coalition forces move quickly into Baghdad yesterday. They moved with an objective to, redeem, uh, to remove an evil regime with purpose in mind. Do we move with that type of purpose for the gospel? We should have a greater purpose, right? When we have an objective that we need to accomplish that's what I said before. I shared briefly last time with you in communion. A sense of urgency. I told you that in, you see in the book of Acts, first um, century church, men like Paul, with the gospel urgency, based on conviction that sinners are dying, desperately lost and condemned to eternal hell. I believe Paul had the sense of urgency for the gospel because someday each Christian must stand before our Lord and give an account of our stewardship of the gospel that has been trusted to us. We lack this conviction 
Again, perhaps more than prayer. Perhaps more than financial support. Perhaps it's not more training we need. These may be easier ways out. But perhaps all we need is that sense of urgency that we are on a mission. That we are to accomplish an objective that we has been entrusted to us, given to us. It's not an option. It has been given to us. I think it's difficult to imitate Apostle Paul on some of his characteristics. But one thing that we should, I think, imitate is his sense of urgency to proclaim the word, proclaim the gospel to the fallen world. So I ask you this, and just ending. What's happened to the gospel that has been trusted to you? How hard are you working for it? In what sense of mission and urgency do you have? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, You have always been faithful to us. You have given us life to live, given us gifts to do Your work. The question is, how faithful are we to You, God? We have been given time. We have been given the amazing message of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that that we would examine our hearts and strive to be faithful in these areas. That we would walk on this earth the time we have to give the greatest impact for your kingdom. May our service, may our work, may our faithfulness be honoring unto you. In Jesus' name I pray.